last week we talked about how one reason, the first reason in this series on prayer that we don't pray is because we don't fully understand how much God loves us. And if we truly grasped that, if we understood that first and foremost, God is love and, and wants the best for us, we would run to him rather than run away from him. And, and I talked about in Luke 18, the parable, Jesus' parable of, of this widow and desperately crying out over and over and over to this wicked judge. And Jesus says, if a wicked judge will finally just answer the widow's request to, to get her off his back, how much more would a loving God answer our prayers? <clears throat> Sorry, and I talked about the importance of persistence in prayer and, and said that our persistent prayers give testimony that we believe God is a type of God. God is a God who answers our prayers, wants to hear from us. So our persistence in praying as we continue to pray again and again and again for a prayer that hasn't yet been answered the way we would like it to be answered, when we do that, it helps us to not lose heart, as Jesus said, but also it shows that we believe God will eventually answer our prayer. So today we're going to talk about uh, a different aspect of why we don't pray. So turn with me to Mark chapter 9, and since this video is currently on the screen up there, you'll have to turn it in your Bibles. Terrence won't be able to pull the scripture up for you. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that home. That's our gift to you. But as you're looking, Gospel of Mark chapter 9, it's in the New Testament. If you can't find it, go to the table of contents. Um, Okay, Mark chapter 9, verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, so that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they've just come back down the mountain on this Mount of Transfiguration experience that Jesus had. He's up there talking with Elijah and Moses, who've just miraculously appeared. But Mark chapter 9, verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? He asked. Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit but they could not. Now, let me stop and just say, don't worry. Yes, this is a very weird passage talking about demon possession and exorcism, but we're going to save talking about demon possession for another day, uh, maybe sometime around National Bosses Day. Um, now, see, that was a joke, and probably right now, Sunday morning, none of you are laughing like you never do at my jokes, but I'm just picturing that you're all laughing right now, so that's a great thing about preaching to you via video. Anyway, so don't worry. We'll, we'll come back to demon possession later. Uh, but verse 19, uh, Jesus says to them, the, the dad says, I, I brought this boy, I brought my boy to your disciples to drive out the demon, but they could not. And verse 19, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how, shall I, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. 
Now, when we read this in our English translations of Scripture, it, honestly, it sounds really rude. You, you think, wait a minute, Jesus, this poor father has had to deal with this poor boy's condition since he was a little child. Probably the, the best translation would be something like since infancy, he's had this happening to him. And you, all of a sudden, to this poor dad, you say, oh, you sinful, wicked, unbelieving generation. But if you look closely... Jesus may not actually be saying those words, directing those words to this dad. Now, he may be in part because even the dad admits that he, he doesn't believe that Jesus can, can heal him the way he really knows he should believe. He's not believing with 100%. He says in a couple of verses, I believe, and then he hesitates and says, uh, help, help, help thou my unbelief, as the old King James says. But, but to try to figure out why would Jesus even stop and say this, this phrase, you unbelieving generation. Turn with me just a couple chapters back to Mark 6. Mark chapter 6, just a few chapters earlier. There's going to be another story where Jesus, he sends out his disciples to begin doing his ministry work, and, but, but he does it through them. So Mark chapter 6 Verse 7, calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Then jump down a couple of verses. Verse 12, they went out and preached that the people should repent. Now, notice verse 13. If you are someone who uh, takes notes or underlines in your Bible, underline verse 13. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So in Mark chapter 9, you have this story. This dad comes to the disciples to drive out this demon, and they can't do it. But only a few chapters earlier, we read that Jesus sent these same disciples out, and they did effectively, successfully cast out demons. So, so something's happening here, so stay with me as I string these thoughts together. So go back to Mark, Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, verse 20, so they brought him, that is the boy, when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? Now notice his answer. From childhood, he answered. No one really knows for sure why, as Jesus says in a couple of verses, why this demon couldn't be cast out the normal way, whatever the normal way was back then, why did it have to be with extra prayer that this type of demon would be cast out? Well, no one knows for sure, but Bible scholars, as they've studied this passage, the only thing they can really tell that's different is the fact that, that the father says this boy has been demon-possessed since childhood. From a very, very early age, this evil has so intertwined itself with this boy's life. So maybe it has something to do with the fact that, that this evil has so early on overpowered him. And, and, and we can even understand that today. Our research points out that the earlier you begin sinful patterns, the earlier you get exposed to and your life gets intertwined with sin and evil, the harder it is to break. So in terms of addiction, the younger someone begins to drink or, or smoke or view 
pornography, the greater the chance that they will be addicted and the harder it will be later on in life to free themselves of that. We all understand that, right? We all understand that the earlier of an age you began a sinful pattern, the harder it is to break it later on. So maybe that's what's going on going on here. So um, verse 22, uh, the, the father continues. He says, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But, and listen to his just, his hopelessness. You, you hear it in his voice. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You feel for this father because clearly he has watched the pain and the suffering that his young boy has had to endure all of these years. Perhaps he's maybe a teenager by now, and he's always had to watch his boy suffer through this. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Verse 23, if you can, is how it is read in the NIV. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father exclaimed, I do believe. And then I always picture when I read this story, I picture Jesus piercing eyes, looking at this man, begging, and he's so quick. He just wants to say anything that's necessary to get his boy healed. And he quickly says, I do believe. And then Jesus maybe stares back at him. And you, you, you imagine this pause and this pregnant silence where this man is forced to finally recognize he doesn't fully believe. And then he says, help me overcome my unbelief. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the spirit. That idea there is not he waited till there was a crowd so that he could perform the miracle and they all saw. No, as they were running to him, he quickly got this over and done with. But that's a sermon for another day. He said, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? Now notice verse 29. Notice Jesus' response. He said, This kind can come out only by prayer. If you're reading from the old King James, the phrase was prayer and fasting. This kind can come out only by prayer. So let me tie this week together with what we talked about last week. So remember, last week, Jesus taught in Luke 18 a parable about, as the scripture says, why we should pray continually and not give up, or as the old King James said, not lose heart. This idea that, that you, you can't, it's not just giving up as in you stop praying, but this, oh, I, I just give up. Emotionally, spiritually, in every way, you give up. And Jesus says, no, no, you need to pray continually and not give up, not lose heart. In fact, as I said last week, I think what Jesus is actually saying is one of the ways to ensure you do not lose heart is to pray. So the act of prayer itself is what encourages you, refreshes your spirit, and helps you to not lose heart. Remember, too, that I said persevering in prayer through that parable in Luke 18, where the widow continually cries out to the judge 
I said persevering in prayer honors God by showing we believe God is the type of God who answers prayers. If he wasn't, why would we bother continuing to pray? So the fact that we do continue to pray gives glory to him and shows what we believe about him and is a testimony to him. It gives glory to him. So today in Mark 9, you have disciples who, back in Mark 6, had successfully driven out other demons, and they encounter a demon now that's harder to drive out, one that requires extra prayer, apparently. We read, we would be safe to assume the disciples were praying some, so it's not like Jesus is saying, oh, you don't pray at all. Well, no, probably what's happening is Jesus is saying, well, this requires a little extra prayer. So when these disciples fail to drive out this different type of demon that requires extra prayer, what do they do? Do they persevere in prayer? Do they continue praying? They, they Clearly, the, the father said, I, try, I, I gave this boy, my boy, to your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. So it's assumed they have already tried once to exorcise the demon out of this boy. They tried and it didn't work, and then we see Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down, and they're arguing with the teachers of the law. So, did they persevere in prayer until the demon had been driven out? Well, no, apparently not, because when they come down and we see them in this scene, they're not, they're not praying, they're arguing. Do they persevere in prayer as a sign that God will eventually answer their prayer, that the demons would leave this boy? Do we come down and do we see them praying, Lord, we believe that you will hear our prayer? Well, no. No, the scripture says, Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain. They greet, meet the other disciples. There's an argument taking place. The disciples, these who had stayed behind to try to cast out this demon, they're not praying. They're not persevering, continually trying to cast out the demon. They're arguing with teachers of the law, and this is not like lawyers. The law was the term for the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. So these are basically seminary professors, pastors, preachers like me, and and we see that they're no longer persevering in prayer. They're arguing about presumably religious stuff. In other words, As soon as these disciples encounter a a bump, a speed bump along their spiritual journey, they they figured out, they've already done it before, they've preached repentance, they, they anointed the sick and they were healed, and they cast out demons successfully in Mark chapter 6. But then something new happens, and they give up. They don't continue in prayer they resort to just religious bickering with people. So I wonder what some of the thoughts would would be. I wrote some down, some just my imaginations. Maybe they thought, clearly, clearly this demon cannot be driven out because we've done it before successfully and this one is not being exercised from this boy. Clearly this one can't be driven out. It's too set in remember because he he'd been demon possessed since he was an infant 
There, there's no chance for this boy to change. He's a, he's a lost cause. He's been controlled by evil too long. Let's just stop, guys. No need even bothering trying to get this demon out of this boy. We'll just pick a fight with these Pharisees over here. Or, or maybe they thought, if we don't see God work a miracle just as quickly with this boy as when we saw him work miracles in the other places that we had traveled when we were casting out demons all around the area, we're just going to give up. We're going to give up. We're going to start arguing with these Bible teachers, the teachers of the law, as the Bible, the Scripture calls them. We, we, won't, we won't continue praying when we can't immediately cast out this demon. No, we're not, we're not going to continue praying that this boy would be healed we're giving up on God, and really, we're giving up on this boy. We're not going to continue to believe that God would heal this boy. We're not going to continue persevering in our belief and in our faith that God is a God who wants a poor boy like this, who's so controlled by these demons that they try to kill him, toss him in the fire as, as his father perceives what's happening. We, we no longer choose to believe God is a God who cares about a boy like that, we're going to divert our attention from prayer that this little boy be healed to begin an argument, a religious dispute over with these people over here. We're going to give up on the very work Jesus told us to do. And instead, we're just going to focus over here and start talking about church stuff. I mean, that's good enough, right? I mean, yeah, we are explicitly disobeying Jesus' command to us, but, but our language, our activity is still religious-y, still churchy. That's good enough, right? I mean, it, it's okay to blatantly disobey God's command as long as we're still doing some churchy stuff, right? As long as we still regularly interact with other religious people and regularly talk about religious things and maybe even get in arguments about them to show how passionate we are about God, all the while disobeying what God has explicitly commanded us to do, that's okay, right? Or maybe not. So what does this mean for us? This honestly very weird story about a little boy who's demon-possessed, and demon-possessed in a powerful way that these disciples can't do it. What does it mean for us? Well, let me ask you. Do you have a family member who's been far from God? I mean, really, really far from God for a really long time. Have you given up? Have you given up believing that God is the type of God who wants to see your family member come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Do, do you have an addiction that's controlling you? Maybe no one knows. You're the perfect churchman, perfect churchwoman, but you have a secret addiction that is controlling you, or you know someone else who does. Well, first, if you do, you need to confess it to the church because, number one, you're commanded to in Scripture, but number two, 
we need to be joining with you. Now, you don't just stand up here and air your dirty laundry. No, but you come to someone like me or someone you can trust, someone who, can, who, who you know can handle that type of truth, and you confess it, and you ask for your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you that you might be healed. Or if it's for someone else, that we might pray for them. So first, what does it mean for us? I think this story means we should, just like last week, pray continually and not give up, not lose heart. Don't give up praying for those family members, those loved ones who do not know you. Don't give up praying for Grace Tabernacle, that God would do a miracle and, and resuscitate this church. God is in the business of raising the dead so he can do amazing things here. But secondly, I think it also means if your prayer or if your life is lacking prayer to God, it means you also lack faith in God. If your prayer or if your life is lacking prayer to God, it means you also lack faith in God. So, to put it bluntly, your lack of prayer proves you are a functional atheist. You may come to church on Sundays, but you live your daily life, how you make your decisions, how you live your life, how you interact with people in this world, you're a functional atheist. You do not converse with the God who saved you. Scripture makes it clear that those who trust in Jesus Christ are people who pray to Him. And and those who don't pray, obviously, have not put their faith in Him, because those who put their faith in Him pray to Him. So if you don't pray to Him, you're not putting your faith in Him. So once again, to put it bluntly, if you have no prayer life, I seriously question whether or not you are truly a Christian. And I think, last, it also means we will have issues in our life. We will have speed bumps or sometimes mountains in our life that God will not answer when we pray about them until we spend additional time in prayer, additional time pressing in to Jesus, learning who He is, learning to love Him. So Jesus didn't say, oh, this demon can only come out through someone really big and powerful, the Son of God. No, He said, this type only can come out by prayer. So apparently, it's safe to assume if if the disciples were praying the way Jesus said needed to be done for this type of demon to come out, it would have come out. And other times, it, it takes more prayer. So there's some times where you can cast that demon out real quick, and other times God says, no, press in, seek me, press into me, spend more time praying, spend more time figuring out who I am, because more than you need the answer to that prayer, you need me. So I, I think sometimes if, if God is not working the way we want, maybe he's trying to teach us to pray. You know, last, there's actually one more thing. I think this 
this passage teaches us, the bigger the prayer request, the more glory God receives when he answers our prayer. So Jesus said, seems to indicate that these disciples could have cast out this demon if they had simply prayed more. But this crowd and everyone around saw these men who had done it before successfully. They couldn't do it. The only person in the entire group that could do it that day was Jesus. So who got all the glory? Well, Jesus. The disciples couldn't do it, so there was no chance that anyone would, would put, put them on a pedestal. There's no chance that they would get pride in what they had done for God because they couldn't do it. So I think sometimes for for us to make these little small, piddly prayer requests to God, yes, He'll answer them, and, and He loves us, and He wants to. But, you know, I want to challenge us to make some outlandish, big, massive prayer requests that only God could answer. Not something that, you know, we could just kind of chalk it up to, to coincidence or to our own efforts, but put God on the hook, so to speak, Challenge him, ask him to answer some of the craziest, outlandish prayer requests you have. And then, as we begin to do that, we can then come back and share. Let me tell you this amazing story about how God answered this prayer. Let me tell you about how this miracle just happened, and I watched it happen, and it's the very thing I had been praying about. And as we begin to pray, not in some small, piddly way, but praying big prayers to God, when He answers, because we will believe that He he wants to answer, He will answer, when He answers, He gets the glory, and we have an opportunity to testify to His work, His action in our life. So, I don't want to end a sermon on prayer and praying big prayers to God without giving you a chance to write down these prayers. So, uh, hopefully in your, in your bulletin you received a little prayer card today. If you didn't, uh, maybe some ushers can help uh, pass them out to you. So, I want to take some time for y'all to write down some of your biggest prayer needs. What is something that you're kind of honestly afraid to even mention as a prayer because you really don't believe God would answer your prayer? If something just came to mind when I said that, that's what I want you to write down. And then as we take our offering at the end of the service, I want you to, to put that prayer card in there, and I'll begin to pray for them. And as, as you've written down these prayers, then prepare and watch and trust that God will answer. Sometimes He might do it immediately. Other times, you might have to wait a while. But we will believe and begin to pray big prayers to God Father, we pray, Lord, Father, we, we pray. We, we need to pray. We want to pray, and we are praying. Father, teach us to be a people who pray. Father, teach us. Teach us to believe that you hear our prayers, that you want to answer our prayers, and that you have our best interest at heart. You hear us. You love us. Father, remind us 
of your power and your might, that there is no prayer too great that you cannot answer. Those who we know and love who are far from you, who seem so far away from you, walking down a path of sin, we confidently believe you can restore them to you. We believe and we pray that those battling addiction, either here within our church family or those we know, we believe you can break the chains of that addiction. We believe and we pray for restoration and reconciliation of marriages and of relationships with friends and family members. Father, we believe that you can transform Grace Tabernacle. You are in the business of resurrecting the dead, and we are watching it happen here. And so we praise you for what you are doing and pray and praise you for what you will continue to do. May we be faithful in participating to what you're doing. May we be faithful in prayer and in support, participating in the work that you are doing here at Grace Tabernacle, not, not through anything I'm doing, Father. It's in your amazing timing and in your good pleasure of how you are transforming us. May we be a people marked by prayer. Father, may this community, first and foremost, beyond anything else, know that the people who attend Grace Tabernacle each Sunday, man, there are people who love the God who loves them. May we be known for our love of prayer, love of talking to you. And through that, may you transform us to, to love our neighbor. Father, for these, for these tithes and offerings we're about to receive, we, we pray that you will bless them, use them for your kingdom, for your glory, and not our own, your purposes and your ideas, not our own. I thank you for my church family. I, I pray for them. Father, I, I pray that, that we would be transformed this week and we would begin to see, even this week, answers to these giant, outrageous prayers that we have prayed to you. And, and as we see them happen, we will come back week after week beginning to testify and give glory to you of what you are doing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.